Welcome to the Real Estate Addicts Podcast. This is episode 52 with your hosts, Mark Svatsky from Choose Boston. Dan Rubin, HRV Homes. Ray Herto, HRV Homes. And joining us today is our guest. Hey, I'm Mike Jonas. Welcome. I'm uh, a fire protection engineer from Covenant Fire Protection. So my specialty is code consulting and uh, fire protection systems. Super. So Mike just helped me out of a pretty big jam. And uh, we were just chatting and I feel like there are certain areas in development where you can get really jammed up. You know, there are certain guys on your team. One is certainly a zoning attorney, your architect often, code consultants, but fire protection surprisingly comes at me at a left field frequently. It's at the end of the job. It's at CFO time. So actually really looking forward to this conversation. And kind what, of, what, what do you mean at the end of the job? You got to be putting this stuff in during the rough and everything. <laughs> yeah. Do you guys know how this goes? Sometimes you're walking through with the fire department and uh, occasionally they'll just walk into a room and tell you to do something out of smoke, out of sprinkler head. And it's sort of like saying, well, it's like religion. It's like life safety. End of conversation. I've been doing this for almost 30 years. And you know, one of my main purposes in life and any fire protection person, sprinkler contractor, fire alarm person, I mean, you try to avoid those situations. And quite frankly, they still do come up way too often. At the end of the job, there's a surprise. But the more you can do up front, the more you can submit good drawings, good permit applications, good information, you know, the better leg you have to stand on at the end of the day when something comes up out of left field. And quite frankly, at the end of the day, usually it's a business decision, Mark. I, I come to you guys come to my owner, come to my general contractor. And I'm like, the fire department wants a widget. The widget costs $5 or we can spend a couple thousand dollars fighting them. Like I said, a lot of times we acquiesce uh, from a technical point of view, just because from a business point of view, it doesn't always make sense, but sometimes it does. Sometimes you gotta, sometimes you gotta draw a line in the sand. I mean, our frustration sometimes is that Things should be codified and spelled out very clearly. And occasionally there are areas where it's kind of open to interpretation or uh, subject to the AHJ authority having jurisdiction. And, and then so we you work, get our yeah, phone calls. We work really, I mean, we've worked really hard over the years to eliminate as much of that as possible. Anytime you see a, a part of the codes or standards where it says, you know, if approved by the authority having jurisdiction, if accepted by, you know, if this, then that, if they want. We've been trying really hard over the years to eliminate as much of that as possible. And of course, you just can't address every single situation that comes up. So there are certain sections and codes and standards that still have that kind of flexibility. So I'd like to get back to later some of that fire department access road and the challenge where you and I met on. But just to to kick it off, a more generally question we get a lot from friends who are just getting into this is, do I need to add sprinkler protection to my building? I'm going to renovate the house. I'm going to gut renovate the house. At what point do I need to think about um, adding sprinkler? So, I mean, everything comes from the Massachusetts State Building Code. It all comes from the Massachusetts 780 CMR, which is the Massachusetts State Building Code. So you have two situations that I'm sure you guys run into. You have new construction, and then you have renovation or alteration and additions. I always caution people, you got to start in the right place. If you're doing new construction, you got to start in the building code for new construction. 780 CMR chapters one through, don't quote me on it, it's like 33, 34. Those are all the the, uh, sections for new construction. But if you're going to renovate an existing building, you have to start in the existing building section of the building code, which is chapter 34. And there's there's a specific standard for renovating existing buildings. And it's based on the International Building Code for existing buildings and then adopted by the state of Massachusetts. And it's just, that's the problem is when you get into the existing building code, and I'm trying to pull it up on my computer here, but you have several different situations that are going to affect whether or not you have to do fire protection or add fire protection. So you could be doing repair work. If you're just doing repair work, generally the answer is no. You shouldn't have to be sprinkling a building if you're just going in and repairing broken piping, repairing a roof, whatever. Honestly, a lot of that work you don't even need a building permit for, right? You pull a building permit and you're going to do an alteration or a renovation. They actually have three different levels of alterations or renovations in chapter four of the existing building code. So depending on what level of that you're doing will dictate what type of fire protection is required. And then if you have a change or use or occupancy, that's another level of whether fire protection is required. And then there's another section on if you're doing an addition. So the answer to the question is, 
based on what you're doing for work, you have to go to chapter 34, the existing building code section, and do that analysis of what you're doing for work. Generally speaking, if you're painting, papering, cleaning up, doing some relatively minor work to one unit in a building of 15 units, you shouldn't need to add the sprinkler. But on the other hand, if you're gut renovating a 10-unit apartment building and it's not sprinklered, yeah, you're going to end up sprinkling that building. Have you run into any scenarios where the fire department and or the city comes in and someone's only renovating a small portion of the building and they come in and say, you got to sprinkle the whole thing? There are situations where that happens. Generally speaking, if you're renovating a portion of the building, you should only have to address the portion of the building that you're renovating. Unless you're doing a change in use or there's a uh, you know common corridor, common egress issues or other things that are common to the other parts of the building. The intent of the code is not to force you to do something that's economically not feasible. And that's always the argument I use back with people. Back before the before this edition of the building code, in previous editions of the building code, there used to be a phrase in there that said, if the scope and the extent of the renovations are substantial when compared to the scope and the cost of putting in the sprinkler, then you got to put the sprinkler in. There was, and that had been tested in court many times. But the intent isn't that if you're going to go into a unit and do $25,000 or $50,000 or even $100,000 worth of work, and the cost of doing the sprinkler is three or $400,000 for the entire building. That's not the intent. So, but you do have to go into the existing building code and do that analysis and determine where you are. Now, there's a lot of other reasons to sprinkler. We, you know, Mark and I will talk about it later. You could have site access issues. You could have water supply issues. You could have other egress issues, lot line setback issues. You could have all kinds of issues that, you know, maybe the sprinkler is not required but you want it because it's going to help you solve some other code issue. What about a one or a two family house? New construction or gut renovation, my understanding was not required. So long as you don't have other issues that you're up against. So basically the model building code, the international residential building code changed several years ago to require all new one and two family dwellings to be sprinkled. Now, like any model building code, it has to be adopted by an authority. So in Massachusetts, it's adopted by the state of Massachusetts. It becomes the state building code. Well, you got to always be careful because the state, in their infinite wisdom, amends, modifies the model building code that they adopt. So yes, in this particular case, they've amended that section and removed that requirement. So there's no straight requirement for one and two family dwellings to have sprinkler protection, new construction, like unless you need it for some other reason. For one and twos, it's also a height thing, right? There's also height if once you're over four stories, or is that not true? No. I think four stories yeah, turns into commercial code now. If you're just a single family dwelling and you're four stories, you're fine. I mean, try to think of an example. Like we sprinkled Tom Brady's house in Brookline. That's a certain number it's of square awesome. feet, right? But at the end of the day, it's still a single family dwelling. It's still a single family dwelling, although I've done, you know, I've I've done multi-unit residential buildings that are half the size of this house. (laughs) But what about what about attached single families? If it's just two units, it's one and two family. It doesn't require sprinkler. You go over two, you go to three, three units or more, then the answer would be yes. New construction would require sprinkler, and if you do enough renovation work, would require sprinkler. That's interesting, guys. I have a um, I have a friend that's gutting a single family in South Boston, and he's attached on both sides, and it's only a two or three story single family, and they're making right, right. they're making him sprinkler it, right. treating it as a larger. Yeah, I mean, you'd have to you'd have to prove if you're attached and you want to be considered a single family dwelling, you'd have to prove that you have the legitimate firewall between the units, mm-hmm. and that's sometimes hard to prove especially in stuff that was done a long time ago, because technically a firewall is structurally independent, stand there forever, and you could literally burn down one side or the other and the firewall doesn't get affected. So my guess is in that particular situation, they're, they're just not capable of proving that it's actually a standalone, separate building, separate single family dwelling. That makes sense. Yeah. And a lot of those older buildings like that have common basements too. You know, and they look at it like it's a, they try to look at it like it's a single family dwelling, but it's not. 
here's another question. Whenever we submit a permit set drawings, we always include a hydraulic calculations and a, a, a narrative with our yeah. fire suppression drawings. Can you tell us a little bit? I've, I've certainly flipped through the hydraulic calcs. I'm not really sure what I'm looking at all the time. Can you expound on that? So pretty much, pretty much every chapter nine fire protection system that gets submitted for permit has to have a few things, right? It has to have drawings. The drawings have to be stamped and signed. It has to have an air, it has to have a uh, affidavit, engineer's affidavit, David for construction control. And then it has to have a narrative and the drawing in the fire protection system, the sprinkler system has hydraulic calcs. The fire protection narrative is just supposed to paint a picture of the project. It's supposed to paint a picture for the fire department so they can quickly review it and look at it. When it originally came out 10, 15 years ago, they published the guideline as to what they wanted it to address and what they didn't want it to address. So it's very simple. The narrative is you know, where is it? How big is it? How many stories? Above grade, below grade, square footage. It, it, mimics, it mimics an architect's code summary, but then it kind of gets into some other things like fire department access, you know, is there storage over 12 feet? And then most notably, it gets to the details of the fire protection system. It's some very, very generic. Are we doing a wet system, a dry system? What kind of water supply do we have? What kind of system are we doing? Is it light, ordinary hazard? So it's intended to paint a picture of of the entire project for the fire department's review. The hydraulic calculations um, attached to go with the drawings. And basically what they do is they prove the pipe sizing, they prove the layout, and they prove the hydraulic performance of the sprinkler system. So for example, a typical residential project, um, if you're doing an NFPA 13 system, would be 0.1 GPM per square feet uh, per square foot over the most remote forest sprinklers in a residential occupancy with residential sprinklers, or it could be over 900 square feet. But the point of it is they tell you you're trying to provide a certain amount of density of water over a certain amount of area. And then you go do a hydrogen flow test. And I'm sure you guys have heard of people having horror stories about getting a hydrogen flow test done. But basically what you're trying to prove is that based on that water supply, based on what you're connecting to for water, that your piping network will deliver the required density over the required area. And GPM is gallons per minute. Correct, so we're always measuring two things. We're always measuring uh, flow or volume, which is gallons per minute, and we're always measuring uh, pressure, PSI. So you always look at the two things together. So for example, a lot of developers will be, oh, I'm buying this building and I went and looked at it and I got great pressure, 100 psi. Well, to the plumber, okay, the the plumber's happy. I got 100 psi. To the sprinkler person, that doesn't mean anything to me unless I know what happens when you flow two, three, four, five hundred gallons a minute. Does that 100 psi drop to 20 psi, or does it stay at 100 psi? So when we do a hydrogen flow test, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to show not just what the static water pressure is, but once we start moving a lot of water, like a fire protection system. What is the pressure going to drop to? There's different types of systems based on the requirements of, of the home and, and everything as well, right? So I think, you know, for residential, most of us are, or a standard three family, most of us are, you know, used to doing like a pump and tank system and or a direct line um, from the street. But there's also, you know, a lot of others, there's dry systems, there's standpipes, there's a lot of, can you kind of, go over the various types of systems based on the size of the building, I guess, or, or is it depend again? So there's, th- so there's three standards for the sprinkler systems, right? There's NFPA 13D, which is for one and two family dwellings with a couple exceptions. I'll explain those in a minute. And there's NFPA 13R. 13D stands for dwelling. 13R stands for residential. And that's for residential occupancies only, up to and including four stories. And there's some exceptions to that. And then 13 system is the granddaddy. That's the old school, been around for 100 years, full commercial building, NFPA 13 system. So let me give you some of the caveats. 13 triggers at a certain square footage too, right? Even if you're three stories, but your X number of square feet, are you pushed into NFPA 13? No, it's based on occupancy. So you can only use 13D if you're a one and two family dwelling, residential. No. You 13 can only versus use, 13R, though. You can only use 13R if you're residential occupancy up to and including four stories. 
But what if it's a, a 9,000 square foot building that's three and a half stories, hypothetically in Dorchester? <laughs> asking, asking for a friend. Very specific. Asking for a friend. I'll skip 13D and I'll go to 13R then. The caveat that they put on it in Massachusetts is 13R is for one is for residential occupancies up to and including four stories. By the NFPA 13R standard, there's no area limitation. However, in Massachusetts, the Massachusetts State Building Code Chapter Nine Chapter Nine amends that and says if your building is more than 12,000 square feet, you can't use it. over 30, over 12,000 square feet. You can't use 13R in Massachusetts. Period. Okay. okay. And that includes a, it includes a garage. If everything, the garage is enclosed, everything, basement, garage, the whole nine yards. So, yeah. and, that, and and you got to be careful because that's exception number one to 13R. Okay. Then there's exception number two to 13R. If your architect takes the height, area, and construction type increase in certain situations, that sprinkler system has to be a NFPA 13 sprinkler system. What's the difference between NFPA 13? Like, it sounds like as a developer, you'd prefer 13R, 13 residential. It's less expensive. It's less complicated. NFPA 13 being the gold standard. What are the differences? What are you paying for when you go from 13R to NFPA 13? The major difference for you folks between 13R and NFPA 13 is combustible void spaces, exterior overhangs, and design density. So in in, in NFPA 13R, you do not have to sprinkle combustible void spaces. So the spaces above your ceilings, the spaces in your attics, any of your exterior overhangs that are more than four feet or built out of wood don't have to be sprinklered. That is the major difference with 13R. There's also a density issue where 13R allows less density, meaning less flow and pressure required than NFPA 13. And certain size rooms and closets, right? I think 13, 13R allows a certain 13R closet. allows bathrooms less than 55 square feet and closets less than 24 square feet. Generally speaking, there are some exceptions to that, but... So uh, as a practical matter, like, because I'm, I'm doing a building right now that's NFPA 13 instead of 13R. The garage put it over. And so those void spaces, what I was intending to do is fill the cavities with a product like Roxol. In doing so, I'm not going to be required to add sprinkler protection in that interstitial or void space. Is that a pretty common approach? Yeah. So there's an exception in NFPA 13. NFPA 13's default is that you have to sprinkler all combustible void spaces. And then it gives you about 36 exceptions. Yeah. One of the 36 exceptions is if you completely fill the space with non-combustible insulation, you don't have to sprinkle it. Where that helps you folks is if you're doing an 18-inch wood truss um, floor ceiling assembly, and you're already filling half of it with with insulation anyways. For sound. For for sound, you know, yeah. yeah. So a lot of times people choose to fill the whole thing. When you go to the top floor of the building, if you have a flat roof, Nobody likes putting sprinklers above the ceiling on the top floor with the flat roof. They're just yeah. concerned about freezing issues and everything else. So a lot of times they'll put the sprinklers, the sprinkler piping in the low, low, low in the space on the top floor, floor roof assembly, and then completely fill the space above the sprinkler pipe with insulation to avoid having to have sprinkler pipe in that void space or yeah. high in that void space. On this so, project, yeah. we have gable roofs and we ended up doing this pretty dramatic ceiling where we care, we, allow, we allowed the ceiling to follow that gable to sort of use like a cathedral effect. And basically it was a, a cost savings because if I had just use a flat ceiling, if you can imagine with that triangular attic above, I would yeah. have had to probably introduce a dry system to that yeah. attic. And so it was, it seemed pretty obvious once we studied it that way. Yeah. In the types of projects that you guys are looking at, if you go to an NFPA 13 system, the combustible void spaces, which includes the attic, can start to be a problem. And there's no, in the olden days, an attic was pretty simple. It was just a straight, straight pitch or a simple hip. Nowadays, when you look at the attics on these buildings, they're uh, quite obnoxious and they have, from a sprinkler yeah. guy's point of view, right? They yeah. have tons of ups and downs and dormers and you guys like it because it looks good or the oh, architect no, we don't likes like it because you got to pay for it. But the architect yeah. likes it because it looks good. But there's all the, all these extra hips, dormers, eyebrows, changes in heights. And it, cha- and it just drives the sprinkler cost in the attic nuts. Dan said uh, standpipes earlier. Can you uh, tell us when is a standpipe required? Sort of what triggers that and what are they used for 
So standpipe system is NFPA 14. It's for the fire department to use. It's for fire for the fire department to have hose valves within the building for them to be able to hook up to and have water without having to stretch hose all the way into or up the building, right? So think about a high-rise building. The fire department can't go into a high-rise building and drag hose up 5, 10, 15, 20 floors. So the standpipe system's there for them to use and connect their hoses to for manual. When you sprinkle the building, which is most of the time when you're going to have standpipe systems, it's not a big deal because you're already putting those risers in for the sprinkler anyways. But it's <laughs> here's the million-dollar question. It's 30 feet from the highest occupied floor to the lowest level of fire department vehicle access. If your building has an occupied floor 30 feet or more above the lowest level of fire department vehicle access, it needs a standpipe system. And conversely, if you have a floor that goes down more than 30 feet from the uh, fire department vehicle access. Seems like a pretty simple definition, 30 feet, but you can get yourself in trouble you have sites where one side of the building's higher than the other, it walks out. You gotta watch out. We it had this to... recently on a four-story building. It was 41 feet-ish. Yeah. But your your feet on the when we first drew it, your feet on that top uh, fourth story landed at like 30 feet nine inches or 31 <laughs> feet. And what we ended up doing was giving that penthouse unit some fantastic ceiling height, floor to ceiling. And we stole from the the units on levels one, two, and three below. And in doing so, it allowed your feet to land at like 29 feet, 11 inches, and it avoided uh, standpipes. Is that barely legal? It's either legit or it's not legit, man. It, it right. either makes it or it doesn't. The number's 30 feet. Dan gave me that movie once. <laughs> we mentioned wet and dry. So is it safe to say that, I'm just trying to remember here from some of the jobs we did, wet would be a system where there's water in all the lines at all times. And dry would be there's not, and that's typically because it's an unconditioned space or some other reason. Your default is always going to be to want to do a wet pipe system. Your default is going to always be cheapest, easiest, best performance, best fire protection is a wet pipe system. When you do wet pipe systems and you in the types of projects that you guys do, you have to be very careful about how they get installed relative to the insulation. Most of the time when you guys have a problem, it's, it's wet pipe sprinkler systems installed in top floor of the building, near out to the balconies, at some funky architectural change in the building, someplace where the insulation wasn't done right, someplace where we thought the insulation was going to be up high and it actually went down low. Wet pipe systems, simple, easy, water's in the pipe. The second the sprinkler melts, water comes out. You just got to make sure they're always, always, always on the heated side of the insulation and the insulation is done well. Can't happen right. all the time. So you guys may do parking underneath that's unheated. You may do attics that are unheated. You may do exterior canopies that need to be sprinklered in a 13 system that aren't, are not heated. So the purpose of a dry pipe system is to sprinkler spaces that aren't heated. So basically, we, we locate a dry valve in the heated sprinkler room where the underground service comes in. We have basically what amounts to a check valve. The surface of the check valve on the top is six times bigger than the surface of the check valve on the bottom. That allows one PSI of air to hold back six PSI of water. And basically, you charge the system with air that supervises the system that makes you, lets you know the pipe is all still in good shape. Sprinkler head operates. Air pressure comes off. Air pressure comes off. Can't keep the check valve shut anymore. Water, water pushes the check valve open and you fill the piping with water. Nice. So that's how you would convert, because we had something like that where it was a um, an interior staircase out to a roof deck, and it was a wet system. We had the insulation behind it. We, I specifically remember us writing on the wall for the insulation guys, don't cover with insulation. And what do you think they did? They covered it. So we had to dig it out. But then it switches from the inside where it's wet to what you just explained. So that was going to be my follow-up question is how does that happen? So it sounds like just a, just a check valve. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's, yep, check valve. Obviously you need an air compressor to maintain the air pressure on the top of the check valve. I always caution people to be careful where they put the compressor. As a sprinkler contractor, I want the compressor and the dry valve as close to the dry system as possible. 
So I try to put them at the top of the stairs. I try to put them in your janitor's closets on the top floor of the building. But when you drag the compressor up there and it runs, Ethel in apartment 406 calls every day because she hears the compressor run for a few minutes and it, they don't right. like it. So right. yeah, when you do the dry valve, be careful where you put the compressor. So nice. the, tech, the dry system isn't difficult to install, in my opinion. It's expensive because that valve wants to cost like six, $7,000. No, my, it's ac- actually, it's the complete other way around. Tell me. I could care less about the valve. The valve is mm-hmm. inconsequential. What the hassle is, is on a wet pipe system, I'm allowed to trap five gallons of water for free, up to 55 gallons of water with a three-quarter inch outlet. And then I don't even have to provide an auxiliary drain until I trap more than 55 gallons of water. When you're doing a residential system with one, one and a half, two-inch pipe, that's a crap load of pipe that you can trap. When I do a dry system, I can't trap anything. So everything has to be installed to drain, pitched to drain. And even if I trap a very small section of the piping, I have to provide an auxiliary drain there. And not only do I have to provide an auxiliary drain, they have these things called drum drips on them where I have to be able to take the condensation out. And if the thing freezes, there's expansion. So point of the conversation is the cost of the dry system is not the valve. It's quite frankly, the hassle of having to put in all the pipe to pitch, lay it out properly. And then of course, all the piping on a dry system has to be steel. Whereas a wet system, when you're concealed in the building, we do mostly CPVC plastic pipe. So I had that about 180 degrees wrong. So yeah, the valve, I'm glad the I valve, asked. Yeah. The valves nowadays are, in, yeah. yeah. Material is generally inconsequential to the labor. I mean, uh, there are some sprinkler jobs that, that material gets expensive, but in the stuff you guys are doing, it's all labor. The quicker you can help them get it in, the faster it goes in, the better you're going to get for price. Now, there are special heads that can be used on a wet system for running stuff outside, because I know our guys have done that in the past, where if we have to get a covered deck on the exterior mm-hmm. building, they can, they can swap out to use a special head that necessarily won't, won't freeze, I guess. Can you, guess, mm-hmm. can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. It's called a uh, dry, dry sprinkler. So we have dry pendant sprinklers, which go down. We have dry sidewall sprinklers, which go sideways. And then we have dry upright sprinklers that go up. Normally, we don't see dry upright sprinklers. Normally, what you guys are seeing is dry sidewalls going out on the decks. Uh, and sometimes dry pendants down into parking garages or, or unheated spaces underneath. The easiest way to explain it is, you know what a frost-proof hose bib, sure. right? So when you close the hose bib, it actually closes a foot back inside the building so that the the water stopped on the on the heated side of the insulation a dry sprinkler a dry barrel sprinkler is exactly the same thing we purchase them or the sprinkler contractor will purchase them to a pre-ordered length and basically when the sprinkler operates and it and and the element melts it's going to actually open the for lack of a better way to describe it's going to open the outlet at the other end of that dry barrel just like a just like a frost proof hose bib on your house. You can buy them in various lengths. And the biggest trick is to always make sure that you get the length of the dry barrel correct so that you have enough of it on the heated side of the insulation to prevent it from freezing. So the longer you buy them, the more expensive they are. So again, as a sprinkler contractor, they try to buy them as short as possible. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't like to see you putting them in any short, like the decks and stuff, they really shouldn't be any shorter than like a foot because you want to make sure they can clearly get through the siding, the sheathing, six inch, you know, five and a half inch stud and get clearly, you know, have a few inches of exposed barrel on the heated side of the insulation. Now, where you guys also get in trouble is when you try to drop down to a deck and the, the height of the deck is actually lower, where we need to get to is actually lower than the height of the ceiling in the unit. And I don't know if people have bumped into that before where yep. you're trying to put yeah. a dry sidewall. Yeah, you're trying to put a dry sidewall out. And unfortunately, you need to be four to six inches below the joist on the deck. And to do that puts you below the ceiling in the unit. Now you're either looking at exposed pipe or, uh, or soffit. Soffit. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we've had that one. <laughs> we also had one where uh, I think it was one of, the, one, of the, one of the very first projects we did. We knew nothing about fire sprinkler systems. And the first design that we got, I'm not going to name the company, they recommended for a two-family, four-story 
uh, building a four inch line from the street. And I think, I don't know how we got a second opinion on that, but that just was crazy because typically it's a two inch line, especially for those calculations. So luckily we had a, another line run, but at what point do you go from two to the four? Is that just all those hydraulic calculations you were mentioning earlier? And there's really no science or, or easy way to guess when you're yeah, designing if, a building? If you guys haven't figured it out yet, if you're doing a single family, a two family or a three family, you should not be connecting to the city water supply at all. It costs you more money to, to connect to the city water supply than it does to take to put the 13D tank and pump system in. So most people who do those little, do the three families, because remember when I said 13D was one and two families, and you, mm-hmm. never, you guys put, pushed me off to 13R? Well, a 13D system in Massachusetts, you can actually use for a three family, but you have to take it from a 10-minute water supply to a 20-minute water supply. But the point of the conversation is, one and one, two and three family units in Massachusetts, I would not, from an economic point of view, it's much cheaper and easier to do the little tank and pump. Connecting to the city water supply is a hassle. They want separate water lines. The water department wants you to put in something that's three times bigger than it needs to be, blah, blah, blah. You got to dig the street, stay away from it. Once you get past that and you're sizing an underground service, the answer to your question is yes. It depends on what the city water supply is, and it depends on what your sprinkler system demand is. So if you have a really strong water supply and you just have a residential sprinkler demand, then your underground pipe sizing can be smaller. If you have a larger sprinkler demand, like in a warehouse or ethyl methyl death manufacturing facility, where you have a large sprinkler demand, or you have poor water supply, you may need bigger. All you're trying to do is limit the amount of friction loss in the pipe. So longer the pipe, the more water you're flowing, the more friction loss. So the only other advice I would give you is if you're going to bury a pipe, don't be cheap. The cost of burying the pipe is digging the hole. And, um, you know, it, it's some, I get it. Two to four is a difference. Cause you can, you can roll out something, you can roll out some two inch plastic where four inch may get to be something that's a little bit more, you know, involved material wise. But um, I guess generally I would say don't be cheap. If you're going to dig the hole, dig the street, do everything else, put the size you need in because most of the cost is in digging the hole and doing the connection and the police de- detail and the you know steel plates in the street and everything else. Do you get involved in the fire alarm design or do you sort yeah, of stay away from that? No, I get involved in it a little bit. We don't, my covenant doesn't install those, but we do design mm-hmm. and, and I have done you know installs and designs in the past. I'm just wondering if maybe you can share some of the key elements to a fire alarm design, be it a strobe, a horn, a pole, when they're needed, where they're needed. Is that, a, is that too broad of a question? A little bit, but we can try, Mark. We can try. Yeah. You know, typically, if you have individual units with their own entrance and exit directly to the outside, then it's like a house, right? You're doing 110 volt interconnected smoke detectors. There's no common space. There's no common corridor. There's no common egress there. It's just like it's individual houses, like a townhouse where everybody has their own exits. You're not really, you don't have to go through someone else's unit or someone, some common space to get out. Typically those are just interconnected 110 10 volt smoke detectors. That's pretty much it. When you start getting to a full-fledged fire alarm system, because you have common egress, common stairs, common space, elevators, all that other good stuff. Uh, Let's see, a fire alarm system, let's see which way I want to work. I'll work from the street, or I'll work from the fire department back into the building. So typically, you have to have a way to report it to the fire department, right? So that can be a master box, that can be a central station, that can be an alarm monitoring company. So that's how we get from the building to the fire department. Once you're at the building, you have a fire alarm control panel that controls everything. Sometimes you'll have a remote enunciator panel at the front door or some other place where the fire department comes because they want to see the status and be able to manipulate the system. And then you come out of the fire alarm control panel and you typically have two things. You typically have what we call initiating devices and you typically have what we call notification appliances. So a notification appliance would be the red beacon on the outside of the building, showing you where, the, where to come to the building, the horn strobes in the building, anything, door holders that hold open doors and release the doors when the fire alarm system goes off, all that sort of notification, horn strobes, speakers. And then the initiating side 
typically starts with pull stations at the exits, smoke detectors for common paths of egress and egress travel, tops of stairs, elevator recall, electric rooms. And then the biggest piece of the initiation side is typically monitoring the fire protection system. So it's flow switches, tamper switches. So we see those flow switches tested at uh, CFO. That's that's a typical uh, correct. So CFO sprinkler and fire alarm CFO is always a chicken and an egg, right? So you know I can't be done until they're done, and they can't be done until I'm done. So the sprinkler guy and the the electrician or the fire alarm tech on site have some coordination to do to be both ready and tested at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. If the first time you test your fire alarm system is the day the fire department shows up, you have set yourself up for failure. So, I mean, I would, I would caution you all to make sure your vendors, make sure your contractors are pre-testing and giving you the the paperwork ahead of time and not just faking it because nothing, yeah, nothing looks, nothing's worse in the world Mm. than when we're standing there, we go to run that first flow switch and we're just sitting there and sitting there and sitting there. (laughs) And then everybody starts looking at each other and they're blaming me and I'm blaming the, the fire alarm guy. And, and then the fire department just says, I don't care whose fault it is, you fail. Yeah, do not pass go. Yeah. Do not I'm done. $200. Call me yeah. back. I'll call yeah. back. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, to go. yeah, and maybe you'll see me in two weeks. Yeah, yeah. unless you want to pay me overtime, then yeah. I can come back tomorrow after five and I'll do your <laughs> test again then. Indeed. The other thing I always tell my buyers is like, uh, sprinkler systems are not like the movie Backdraft. If you burn the toast, your unit will not flood you need an actual heat source, right? Like to, to melt that, whatever it is in the pendant. Yeah, I mean, I, sprinkler systems are really, they really, really, really are like magic. If they're installed properly and they're yeah. maintained properly, they work really, really good all the time. To the point where their effectiveness, it's on NFPA's website, but I mean, their sprinkler systems are in the 90%. I think it's like 94%, 95% effective at doing what they do. The number one thing that goes wrong with a, with a sprinkler system is the valves closed and it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. They work all the time. They put fires out. We do designs of forehead residential designs or 900 square feet of um, commercial space or 1,500 square feet of commercial space. The vast majority, I think over 80% of fires are controlled by, by you know less than one and like 95% are controlled by less than five sprinklers, some numbers yeah. like that. Everyone so, thinks that every head goes off in the event of a fire and the whole building just <laughs> fills with water. No. And when your girlfriend comes over and she's really hot and she's doing her dance routine <laughs> on the counter, it's not like a Britney Spears thing where the, you know, the, the hot girlfriend can set off all the sprinklers and you got this flood coming down. That's like just Hollywood. Oh, that's just MTV. Interesting. interesting. So basically a sprinkler has two things. It has a thermal, it has a response, what we call a response time index, and it has a thermal sensitivity level. So the thermal sensitivity level is normally in the 155 to 165 degree range. And then they go up from there. That's an ordinary temperature sprinkler. They'll go up to uh, 200 to 212 for intermediate, and they'll go even higher. And then they have a response time index, meaning if I take that sprinkler that's rated for 155 or 165 degrees, if I take it and just plunge it into a stream of air at that temperature, it's not going to instantaneously go off at that temperature. There's thermal lag. You have to, you have to heat the element. You have, you know, it's just, I'm trying to think of an example. If you put a pot on the stove and the flame is, you know, the flame is full of water and the flame is, and the flames coming up underneath it, it doesn't boil instantaneously because the flame is, you know, a thousand degrees underneath it. It takes time to warm it up. So what I tell people is, by the time that sprinkler goes off, you want it to go off. And you can see it every day, all day long. If you go to uh, any of the sprinkler save websites uh, where they show uh, examples of sprinkler saves or stories. Um, Mike, is it true that, that a smoke detector saves your life and a sprinkler head saves your building? No. Have you ever heard that said? No. I've heard it said, but it's no longer true. It used to be true. So let me see if I can give you another example. In the olden days, we used to have sprinklers with, I don't have any on my desk, but we used to have sprinklers with gigantic thermal links, big thermal links, big links on a metal, big thermal lag, big RTIs. They take a long time to operate. Nowadays, a residential sprinkler comes with a little glass bulb. It's maybe maybe like a, an eighth of an inch in diameter. The response time of those is much, much quicker. 
to be a residential sprinkler, to be listed as a residential sprinkler, you have to pass survivability requirements for light obscuration, heat, carbon monoxide, and all these other life safety criteria to the point where if I'm sleeping in a room with a, with a residential sprinkler, the sprinkler should allow me to stay in that room and never even have to leave. So in the olden days, yes, we re relied on sprinklers just for property protection. Smoke detector tells you to get out. Sprinkler goes off much later. Not the case anymore. We're using sprinklers to help ensure survivability in the building in the, in, and actually in the room of origin where the fire starts. So... This has been helpful. I've been carrying around all these kind of false preconceptions and notions and repeating them as facts when I talk to people. The only two things you guys should not like about sprinklers, and then I'll give you a bunch of things you should like. You shouldn't like the fact that it costs you money, and you shouldn't like the fact that they sometimes freeze. The money part, you can't help yourself. When they're required by code, when you need to do them, you're going to do them. I'm not expecting you know developers are putting them in, in there out of the goodness of their heart. I wish they would, but they won't. And then the, you got to make sure they're put in on the heated side of the insulation and the insulation is done well. If you do that well, you've eliminated the vast majority of the problems you're going to have. Now, here's the other side. Once you put them in, you can go to bed at night knowing that you're doing the right thing. You're being code compliant. You are protecting property. You are protecting lives. And here's the thing that people don't get. And it brings us full circle, Mark, to some of the conversations. Once you sprinkle your building, the things that you can do with it are exponentially wide in the building and fire code than if you don't sprinkle the building. So I strongly encourage you when you're doing it, when it's required, you're going to take advantage of all those other exceptions. How many times have I said to you, if you weren't sprinklered, you'd be screwed, whatever yeah. it is, height, area, construction type, mm -hmm. site access, water supply, dead end corridors, common paths of travel, ratings of walls, you know, it, on and on and on and on and on. I mean, almost everything in the building code says, this is what you have to do unless you're sprinklered, then you can do this. How far can you go to a dead end corridor? What's, what's the rules on that? I've, I believe uh, in a sprinkler it's 20 feet. Unsprinkler is 20, sprinkler is 40. You mentioned the word maintenance earlier. So what maintenance, if any, is required on a sprinkler system? Because, you know, a lot of times as a developer, we're selling the the building or selling the units. And then after we sell the units, the, the unit owners have a condo association or whatever, and it's on them. So what kind of maintenance should an owner be expected to do on their system? Yeah. So on a sprinkler system, your maintenance requirements comes from a document called NFBA 25, which is for inspection, testing, and maintenance of water-based fire protection systems. It all comes from that document. The beauty of it in the, in the state of Massachusetts is whoever is the owner of the building is responsible for doing the inspection, testing, and maintenance. So if you guys own the building until you turn it over to the condo association, whether that's a week, a month, a year, five years, you are the one who's responsible for doing that inspection, testing, and maintenance in accordance with NFPA 25. Once you turn it over to them, then it becomes their requirement. In NFPA 25, for a typical sprinkler system, there is literally weekly, monthly, quarterly, semi-annually, and annual requirements that are there. Some of them are pretty easy. Some of them people self-perform, and the majority of them, they go out and get a sprinkler contractor for quarterly and annual. Typically, those are all done by a sprinkler contractor. But typically, you're doing an inspection, you're doing your valves, you're doing your tamper switches, you're doing your flow switches walk in the building, in a typical sprinkler system. Now you have a fire pump and other things, a standpipe system, it starts to bring into other requirements. There are also requirements at five years, 10 years, 25 years, 50 years. So it all comes out of NFPA 25. And, quite, and, 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 and that's available actually online if you, if you ever want to see it. It's actually on NFPA's website free. I guess one of the other benefits we didn't mention was uh, obviously lower insurance costs because yeah. insurance companies love that. Probably why Tom Brady's house has it. But but isn't the irony of all that that if there was an issue, the fire say a fire head goes off or two heads go off, you're going to have more damage presumably from the water than from the fire. I guess I don't understand why an insurance company would view a fire sprinkler system as less exposure to them. I don't know. Maybe another conversation for an insurance person. 
I can't let you get off the hook with that comment. I, cannot, <laughs> I, I knew this was coming. Maybe it's a I myth. Maybe we're debunking. You I just cannot, set up such a lob softball here. It's going to oh, get smacked. Here we go. You are delusional if you think the water damage is going to be more than the fire damage. You're delusional. I mean, assuming what? that it puts the fire out. It puts the fire like out a, every time. Third yeah, you're floor. like the people who don't wear third, masks. Right no, no, now. no, 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 no. Third floor fire starts and then the system turns on and now floors one and two are completely soaked in trash and have to be gutted. Perfect. Okay, so you got what, $100,000, $200,000 deal to clean it up? Now, what would happen if the sprinkler wasn't there? You'd have no building. You'd be bulldozing the build, building into the ground. I also think that if someone were to die in that fire, the insurance's liability and, would be and millions somebody, and millions and millions. And if somebody so. was to get hurt. Here's the thing I don't have. I wish I had it in front of me. So fire grows at an exponential rate. If you look at the fire's growth rate or the fire's heat release rate as the left side of a, um, a graph, and you look at time across the bottom, fire grows exponentially. It doesn't grow linearly. Li linearly. So for every minute that goes by, it grows exponentially. At two minutes, it's at four. At four minutes, it's at 16. At 16, it's at, you know, whatever that number is. People really, truly underestimate how fast it grows. And 99% of the time, the fire will flash over and completely engulf the room of origin before the fire department can even get there. And sprinklers, the beauty of what a sprinkler does is it's intended to, its number one purpose is to get an incipient or an early fire and get it way before it would ever get close to flashover. And, um, you know, it, it, it's just, it, it, it's been proven time and time and time and time again, even with today's water damage problems, even with today's water damage problems. So for a single family dwelling, my homeowner's insurance, um, uh, let's just say it's a thousand or twelve hundred dollars. It's a thirty percent discount for having the sprinkler. Nice. All right. It's not a, yeah, you know, it's not a lot. So think about it. Thirty percent. So what am I saving myself? When I save myself a couple hundred bucks a year, if I had to pay to put a sprinkler in my house, it'd cost me five, six, seven thousand dollars, eight thousand dollars. So obviously the payback from the insurance perspective does not make sense, right? At two, three hundred bucks a year. And I will say from a sprinkler contractor's point of view, sprinkler insurance has gone through the roof, not because we're burning buildings down because sprinklers don't work, because the cost of water damage has gone through the roof. Well, the other problem is that a lot of these PVC fittings are all done with glue. And uh, I've seen a couple occasions where that elbow joint was dry fit and then never taken apart, primed and glued properly. And a year into occupancy, the pressure from the line just blows that elbow and now you have a flood in the building. And I, I can assume that that's a so real people, insurance problem. Sprinkler contractors, the more CPVC pipe, the more plastic yeah. pipe you install, the more expensive mm -hmm. your, your liability insurance is. I should assume so, yeah. There has been some issues. There's been environmental stress cracking. Many years ago, there was um, you know a learning curve for people to learn how to install it. I would say today, Covenant Fire Protection, probably if we do... $12 million a year worth of business, I would say seven or eight of it's plastic. Have we never had a dry, have we ever had a dry fit? Yes. But when you count up the number of fittings, it's, it's like in the minuscule percentage, except unfortunately when they happen. It is amazing though, that they can hold oh, yeah. for as long as they do. And then they oh, go. Yeah. And, it's and generally, bad, so. generally what happens is something happened, right? So it's yeah. either really hot, it's really cold. Some other sprinkler guy came in and drained the pipe and filled it back up. So the dry fit's been sitting there forever, and then something happened. There's a little pull on the pipe. There's a little weight on the pipe. Someone touches it. Someone takes the water off of it and puts it back on. It's a problem. And uh, quite frankly, what we try to do is we try to literally go around and double check every single fitting before the before they yeah. come and do the drywall. So this this will maybe uh, be where we leave it. But one other developer nightmare for fire protection is uh, when a drywaller or a carpenter, someone puts a nail through a, uh, a fire protection pipe and you go to pressure test it and, and the gauge just slowly comes down and now all your board is up. Typically, it's when, when you're boarding, right? You know, these guys are flying a million miles an hour and uh, a screw gun ends up penetrating one of your fire protection pipes. And then trying to find that 
behind the drywall uh, is unpleasant to put it mildly. And I've had that situation and it causes some real stress. Yeah. So plastic pipe, you're really not supposed to put air on. We do it. We did it. The, we we took preferred... a big compressor and listened for it. Yeah. And then you can do that too, but you're taking your chances if anything blows apart because yeah. air is compressed. And But the preferred method was, you know, have the place heated and just put the water on it. So when the guy hits it, you know where it is right away. And I've had situations where we just could never find it. So we just literally had to gently fill with water until, oh, wow. we, could, until we could find it. Then I had people put air fragrance into the pipe thinking that they were going to find it. And they ruined every single piece of pipe in the building by, no. putting, by putting oil fragrance, fragranced oil into the pipe, which just oh. ate, ate the plastic apart and the whole thing needed to be ripped out and replaced. Well, we learned a lot today. I think we learned that uh, dry systems are cost-driven by labor uh, and not just the dry valve. Sprinkler heads save much more money than they do in you know, potentially water damage. And uh, don't put fragrance in a, in a <laughs> sprinkler pipe. You know, here's the thing. You know, when you get, you guys do it all the time. You, you, you plan the projects, you do your budgets. You just have to have a good understanding of, of when it's required. And like I said, when it is required, make sure throughout the entire process, you're taking credit for every, everything you could possibly take credit for, for being a sprinkler building so that you're getting some value back, you know, on your bottom line. Mike, thank you so much for taking the time today. I know I learned a lot. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, you call it debunking the myths of uh, fire suppression, you know? If you want to follow up, it's Home Fire Sprinkler Coalition. I think it's homefiresprinkler.org. And they're, they're myth, myth debunkers there. So they, they give you all the good, good stuff. If someone wants to get in touch with you or your company, and how can they do that? For me, is M. Jonas at Covenant Fire Pro. So it's M for Michael and then J-O-A-N-I-S at Covenant Fire Pro, C-O-V-E-N-A-N-T, firepro.com. Or they can even call 603-860-3404. Leave me a message and see if I can help you out. Super. Thanks again, Mike. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you, guys. All right. Have fun out there. Thanks, Mike. Thanks. Yep. Take care. Be safe.